Welcome back to the Evidence for Faith courses with Michael Lane, brought to you by our wonderful donors at evidenceforfaith.org. You can help us produce the next course by becoming a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And while you're on the website, don't forget to check out some of our other courses and even live events and adventure trips we have going on, such as our marine biology trip down in the Florida Keys, or even our biblical archaeology experience down in Israel. You can find all these links and even more information down in the description. And if you've enjoyed today's course, don't forget to share it with a friend. Hi, welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael. I'm so glad you're joining me today as we continue in our series on David's Guide to Leadership. This is a study, if you haven't been with us before, this is a study on the book of 1 Samuel, looking at David, and this is before David becomes king of Israel. This is when David is learning great leadership skills. He's doing God's work. God is with him, and he is learning lessons. And And today we're uh, going to be talking about lesson, well, this is numerically, this is lesson number five, and this is a hard one for all of us, everybody to adjust to as we go and, and mature in our life. And the lesson is this, it's entitled, Success Often Breeds Trouble. Boy, is that true. And it's, we're going to be looking today at uh, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 21 and also some of chapter 22, but we'll be looking at other passages also. But we're going to be talking about how success breeds problems. So with that, let's open in prayer and then let's dive into this Bible study. Father God, we thank you for this time and for each person who's listening. I ask, Lord, that you would help us as we, we open up Scripture. You you open this up and, and to our minds, Lord, and may your Holy Spirit do the teaching as we learn some very, very valuable life lessons today, lessons necessary for just not just being a leader, but as, as we grow and move through our lives in um, following you. How, Lord, you can teach us so much from this. So please be with us and bless us today as we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the late fall of 1944, Allied forces were quickly moving across Hitler's fortress Europe. It had been a hard start since that successful landing at Normandy back in June. But soon afterwards, the Allies were bogged down near the beaches and could not make any headway. The generals in charge, Bradley and Montgomery, were both basically just stuck in what was called hedgerow country, and they couldn't break out. Over six weeks, they sat there like this. But finally, in late July, a controversial general named George Patton was given command of one of these armies. Patton, in the meantime, had been sitting out the war in England. He had been given command of a make-believe army on a ruse that General Eisenhower uh, was trying to play on the Germans. You see, Patton had distinguished himself militarily in North Africa and Sicily. Um, his military style and his, his campaigns were absolutely brilliant, but <laughs> he caused quite a few problems with his style of leadership. So he was reprimanded. He was removed from his command. He was placed in England in charge of an army that did not even exist. You see, Eisenhower knew there were spies in England, and that these German spies would think that Patton would be the obvious choice 
to lead the invasion of France. After all, he was like the best general the Allies had, in, in their opinion. But to a fighting man like Patton, who's used to the action and leading soldiers into battle, this was sheer torture. How he longed to be on the Normandy invasion, but he wasn't even allowed to participate. Now things were different. The invasion had occurred, and the Allies were in Normandy, northern France, but the Germans had bottled them up in that area and threatened to push them back into the sea. Though the Allies tried repeatedly, they could not break out of the hedgerow country. Enter George Patton. In just a matter of days, he broke through the German defenses with inferior materials compared to what the enemy had. His army pivoted and broke through like a raging river. In just days, Patton's third army began a lightning sweep through France, moving so fast that the supply trains and the supply trucks and stuff could not keep up with his advance. By August 25th, he liberated Paris. Just a few weeks later, in September, Patton had pushed the Germans all the way back into Germany. But running out of supplies, Patton was forced by General Eisenhower to halt. Patton went on to say that this was the most momentous error of the war. You see, Eisenhower felt inclined to give more supplies to Montgomery and his British army to liberate Belgium and the Netherlands. And so he held Patton back at the border of, of Germany and France. Once His plan was once the British were caught up to Patton's army, Eisenhower planned to use both combined armies to make one massive push into Germany. By mid-December, yes, December, the Americans were still sitting in the same place. Been sitting there for months. Patton could not advance. He wasn't allowed to because of the lack of supplies that he was given. But he had achieved, before that, victory after victory after victory. Who knows how far he would have gone or how soon the war would have ended had General Eisenhower given him the gas and supplies he needed instead of giving them to Montgomery, our British ally. With the Allied front slowed down considerably, winter began to set in. The coming winter would go down in European history as one of the coldest ever recorded. The Germans were happy to see that Patton was halted and couldn't believe that he was halted by his own superiors uh, because they sure did not accomplish Patton's halt. So the German high command took advantage of the situation. Hitler ordered General Rundstedt to launch one last major offensive against the Allies. And it was at the Union Point, the junction between the British Army to the north and the Americans to the south. This is what we commonly call today the Battle of the Bulge. It took place December 16th to the 25th, 1944. Using the terrible weather conditions consisting of blizzards and, and such, an overcast, the German offensive caught most of the Americans totally off guard and pushed them back. The town of Bastogne, where the American headquarters was located, was completely surrounded by the Germans. It appeared that the Germans might be able to drive the Allies back across France. But just prior to this battle taking place, Patton began to suspect that the Germans were up to something. Never in German history had they ever mounted a winter offensive in the middle of a blizzard. But Patton was convinced that was precisely 
what Rundstedt was planning to do. Thus, he commanded his staff to begin preparing for a counteroffensive. In a matter of days, he was able to move his army 90 degrees to the north and relieve the battered defenders of Bastogne. Patton had insights of battles that most generals just did not possess. After the Battle of the Bulge, Patton was given the supplies he wanted and proceed, proceeded to win victory after victory, many times outnumbered by his enemies. You know, there's a funny story about this, um, about the capture of the German city of Trier. And it was an extremely heavily fortified city uh, by the Germans. Uh, the battle, though, had already been won. Patton had gone with the Third Army, and they had taken the city very quickly. And then, after the battle, <laughs> General Patton received a message from his superior, General Bradley. The message said, quote, bypassed here. It would take too many divisions to try and capture it, unquote. Patton humorously replied to Bradley, <laughs> saying, have already taken the city with one division. What do you want me to do, give it back? <laughs> Patton experienced victory after victory until the war was over. But once it was done, he became depressed, a very depressed individual. He was used to the victories. He was used to leading men in battle, but then the bottom fell off from under him. He was removed from command of the Third Army uh, because he was making negative comments about our Russian allies. He was sent back to the U.S. And even in some places, this victorious general, when he came back, he wasn't accepted. They wouldn't allow him to make speeches. They wouldn't allow him to come to certain events. He soon returned back to Germany, where soon after arriving, he was involved in a car accident in which his neck was broke. Depression really set in and swept over him at this point, and he died just before Christmas of 1945. What a ride. A man who has experienced so many victories and victories and victories. And then all of a sudden, massive depression to the point that he died. Now, we have seen David grow in situations. A lot of things have happened to David. If you've been listening to our study thus far, he's had quite a ride. He's risen from a lowly shepherd in, in his family where he was not considered very important to the commander of the army of Israel. Along this way, he has defeated Goliath, the giant, the Philistine armies on many occasions. He's married a princess and has had songs even sung about him and his leadership by all the country. He is what we would call today like the flavor of the month or the man of the hour. But all of this was about to change dramatically. You see, after experiencing victory, after victory and success after success, he is about to experience the lowest moment of his life thus far. The bottom is about to fall out from under him. You see, Saul has tried to repeatedly to have David murdered, fueled by jealousy that has just eaten him alive. He's getting close to fulfilling his dream of killing his son-in-law. In fact, David just barely escaped with his life on a couple of occasions, even at one point now, leaving his sword behind. He flees for his life. He runs to the one place he knows Saul will not chase after him, the land of the enemy, the land of the Philistines. Now, we pick this up in 1 Samuel chapter 21. This is going to start in verse 10, 
and we're going to read through verse 15. I'm using the English Standard uh, Version as we do this. It reads, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. The servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, David's his tens of thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gates and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Can you believe it? Do you believe what David's done? David is now seeking asylum in the capital of his enemy, the Philistines. And what really gets me in this story is David is carrying the sword of their champion. We, we, we read that at the very beginning. The first eight verses of this, this chapter talks about how David escaped Saul, goes to Abimelech, the priest, and he forgot his sword, and Abimelech gives him the sword of Goliath. So David comes walking into the capital, the city of Gath, carrying the sword of the champion Goliath, whom he killed in battle. He has left the promised land of God to hide in the land of these idolatrous enemy people, the Philistines. Also, as you read in 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 8, how David, uh, there's a lot of little scattered things here. David just lies and lies and lies and lies. He keeps lying about why he's leaving, why he doesn't have a sword, where he's going. He's, he's lying to the priest. He lied to the king also of Achish. He lied to Achish. He wasn't mad. He was faking it. He was lying. I mean, this is just so uncharacteristic of the David we've been studying. What was our hero thinking? Why would he try to hide in the presence of the enemies of God? Why is he lying? Why is he putting confidence in the Philistines? And most of all, why is he thinking this is a good idea to carry the sword of Goliath as a trophy into Goliath's hometown? His relatives are still there. <laughs> well, the answer is very simple. He was afraid. He had lost his trust in God. Now, let me tell you, if you are planning on developing leadership skills, these are not the examples you want to follow. No. David experienced a series of victories, very, very victorious. Now he's come to a depressing part of his life. Living in the camp in the enemies of God was not God's choice either. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that living in a country that follows idols is wrong. I'm not saying that. Missionaries do that all the time. And they go there to try to lead people to a knowledge, a saving knowledge of Jesus. What David is doing here is totally different. He's not on some mission journey. He's totally lost his trust in God and is trying to hide. And now we see David involved in lying. We haven't seen that before. This guy was so truthful and everything. Lying is wrong. 
I mean, look what God says about lying. Just go to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22. It reads, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. It seems like I often get this question um, from particularly teenagers, uh, sometimes um, preteens, but a lot of times teenagers uh, and college students will ask me this question. Is there ever a time that it's ever right to lie, like tell a white lie or something like that? Should we, is, is telling a white lie a sin? Well, I'm not going to answer it as well as Warren Wearsby, the great Bible teacher, Warren Wearsby. And in his With the Word Bible Commentary, he actually gives the solid answer on this. Let me just quote it to you. Quote, Scripture commands us to tell the truth and warns about the consequences of lying. Jesus is our example, for there was no deceit in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22. We must always speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15. If our telling the truth endangers others, silence is our best response. When David ran ahead of God, he found himself in trouble and lied. The safest thing is to stay away from those situations and to pray, lead me not into temptation, unquote. No, it's not acceptable to lie. Jesus never uttered a deceit. We're supposed to live as he lived. So here we see David, who's standing now before King Achish, and he quickly realizes that this was all of a sudden not a good plan. Hey, I guess I just woke up. This is a bad idea. Uh, I mean, maybe he began to see himself as a liar, and maybe that's what made him start to see reality here. Or maybe he began to see that he'd walked away from God, whom he had trusted as a shepherd. We don't know. We're not told what happened uh, when he comes to his senses here. But we do know he starts to realize the significance and the consequences of his actions. So what's he do now? He runs. He runs away from Achish and he goes and hides in a cave. Now we pick this up in 1 Samuel 22, 1 and 2. It says here, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all of his father's house heard of it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. He became the captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Wow. I mean, David totally bottomed out. He became depressed. He became fearful of his life. Um, but now he began to see that he had left God out of his life. He walked away from the God who had promised that he would be the next king of Israel. How do we know that we've come to his senses? Well, we can see a little bit from Scripture of what's going on in David's mind because we can see what he wrote about during these times in his life. You see, David wrote the following Psalms at this precise time in his life when after experiencing great success, he was feeling mighty low. For instance, Psalm 56 was written when David was with the Philistines at Gath. Let's just take a look at Psalm 56. I'm going to read the first six verses here. This is out of the God's Word translation. It's a little easier to understand. Um, so listen to this. This is what David, and, and just listen to what David is thinking. See what's going on in his mind, how he's feeling when he is with the Philistines and Gath. Have pity on me, O God, because people are harassing me. 
All day long, warriors oppress me. All day long, my enemies spy on me. They harass me. There are so many fighting against me. Even when I am afraid, I still trust you. I praise the word of God. I trust God that I am not afraid. What can mere flesh and blood do to me? Or take a look at Psalm 34. This is when David intended to be insane before King Achish. And this is Psalm 34. I'm going to read verses 17 through 20, again, out of the God's Word translation. But this is what David is um, was writing at the time there before King Achish. Righteous people cry out. The Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near to those whose hearts are humble. He saves those whose spirits are crushed. The righteous person has many troubles, but the Lord rescues him from all of them. All day long, my enemies twist my words. Their every thought is an evil plan against me. They attack and then they hide. They watch my every step as they wait to take my life. This is a guy who's sounding a little depressed. Not only that, in Psalm 56, this was written when David went to the cave of Adullam. And I'm going to read um, Psalm 57 here. This is verses 1 through 6 again, out of God's Word translation. Have pity on me, O God. Have pity on me, because my soul takes refuge in you. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings and until destructive storms pass by. I call to God most high, to God who does everything for me. He sends his help from heaven and saves me. He disgraces the ones who are just harassing me. God sends his mercy and his truth. My soul is surrounded by lions. I must lie down with man-eating lions. Their sharp teeth are spears and arrows. Their tongues are sharp swords. Again, this guy is depressed. It continues in verse 5. May you be honored above heavens, O God. Let your glory extend over the whole earth. My enemies spread out a net to catch me. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit to trap me. You see that this guy is depressed. After having so many victories, this comes along. And we're not done. Take a look at Psalm uh, 142. This is a psalm that David wrote while he's in the cave, hiding in the cave. And he writes this psalm. Loudly I cry to the Lord. Loudly I plead with the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaints in his presence and tell him my troubles. When I begin to lose hope, you already know what I'm experiencing. My enemies have hidden a trap for me on the path where I walk. Look to my right and see that no one notices me. Escape is impossible for me. No one cares about me. I call out to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my, my own inheritance in this world of the living. Pay attention to my cry for help because I'm very weak. Rescue me from those who pursue me because they're too strong for me. Release my soul from prison that I may give thanks to your name. Righteous people will surround me because you are good to me. Isn't it interesting? This guy is really depressed. He's really fearful. He knows the right thing to do. He calls out to God. And this is when he's in the cave when all these people start coming around him. Yeah, righteous people will surround me. His family comes to him also. My friends, it, it never seems to fail that when we experience spiritual victories and depression and despondency, that's when those things appear. Have a spiritual victory, depression usually follows. 
despondency usually follows. I have talked with many evangelists and pastors and preachers who have told me that they dread Mondays the most. Mondays, they say, are depressing days in their lives. When I ask why, they say, coming off a spiritual high on a, on a weekend, like a, a Saturday and a Sunday in particular, they say we have to fight the gloominess that comes on a Monday. Depression follows spiritual victories. We have to be wary of this. As you go through your time in God's ministry, or just through life in general, be on the lookout for success-instigated depression. Success-instigated depression. It usually comes right after you've had achieved a major victory. As a leader, David experienced it at a time, at this time in his life. He was left, he left home alone, but God gave him, did you notice this, 400 people to lead? All these malcontents came around him. Uh, they were all people who were desperate, depressed, and feeling low. David took on the role of leadership and then organized them and changed them. We read in the Psalms that he got his life back on track with God. But he turned them into a tremendous fighting machine. Let me digress for just a moment on something that's very important that we can learn here. It's the idea that the Christian life is a rose garden. A lot of people have that false attitude and false image of Christianity, that if you become a Christian, you just walk, um, we're constantly walking on soft, discarded, fragrant flower petals, that the Christian life is just one silver lined cloud after another. The Christian life is void of real problems. Some foolish people even say that if you have problems and you're a Christian, you must have some unconfessed sin in your life. Listen to me, that is not always true. Many times it's not true. I mean, it can be. Sin can make you depressed. There's no question about that. But um, that does, that's not the reason all this happens. Sometimes the Christian life takes you inside a damp, miserable, cold cave. It's there that God works upon you to strengthen you for a greater purpose. No one enjoys it. No one enjoys being stuck in the cave or out into the wilderness alone. But it does make you stronger if you turn to God. Because he'll make you able to do the job he has in mind for you. And you learn to be the leader that you're supposed to be. No, it's not fun to be pushed out into the wilderness of misery. But that is where God can mold you into the leader you are meant to be. He can shave off the parts that are hindering you that you might not even notice or you might even think are your strengths. He'll take them off and he'll remold you. Another thing that I find interesting about this whole story is that David's family comes to visit and encourage him. Did you catch that? I suspect that David wanted to be alone because depression usually affects a person like that. But it is amazing that even his brothers who ridiculed him before have come down and are now sitting in the cave with him. Having relatives or close friends come to your house, come to you in your hours of depression, that is very, very important for healing. You may not want them there, but it does help. And if you're ever one of those who crawl into the cave to help someone who is suffering from depression, remember this. At first, they might not be too happy to see you in there, but just stick it out because your presence does help them. You don't have to try to teach or preach to them. No, sometimes just being there silent is some of the best 
the best counsel you can give. What you want to do is just support them when they can't support themselves. Too often, when people become depressed, they don't want to talk with God either. I'm sure David had moments like that, but we, we see that he didn't give up on such feelings. In those Psalms I read, you see he's pouring his heart and his, his um, emotions out to God. Though it may seem at times that God has deserted him, or you might find it too. It feels like times God deserts you. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do it. If you search for him, you will find him. James chapter 4, verse 8, verse 8 has a promise. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That's a verse I have relied upon so many times when I feel like God has deserted me. And that is a promise from him. So if you're leading a group of people in a ministry for God, or if you're just trying to live a Christian life and just working at your job or whatever, or in your family, beware of success-instigated depression. Leaders need to recognize that when victories are granted, their followers might fall into this all-too-common problem. These people need to be guided through this normal depression to the joy awaiting them in the spirit. I want to tell you a short little story here to just to wrap this up. It's something that Chuck Swindoll said, and... Um, it's in his book called uh, Swindoll's Ultimate Book of Illustrations and Quotes, and I really like this. It reads, Candidly, of all groups I minister to, few are more depressed and exhausted than a group of pastors. They're often overworked, usually underpaid, and almost uh, without exception, underappreciated, though most of them are doing a remarkable piece of work. Mild depression can come upon us unexpectedly and erode our willingness. However, we can't explain such depression at the time. Though writing more than 100 years ago, Charles Spurgeon described in a chapter in his book, Lectures to My Student, exactly some of the reasons we suffer from burnout in ministry today. He even admitted to depression in his own life, often before a great success, sometimes after a great success, and usually because of something he couldn't explain. He called this chapter in his book, The Minister's Fainting's Fits. Listen to this candid remark that he makes. Fits of depression come over most of us. Usually cheerful as we may be, we must at intervals be cast down. The strong are not always vigorous, the wise not always ready, the brave not always courageous, and the joyous not always happy. There may be here and there men of iron, but surely the rust frets even these. Dear Father, we thank you for this time we have and that would come together. And I pray for anyone who is suffering in this type of situation today that are going through one of these moments of depression, this instigated, success instigated depression. Or Lord, they're just feeling like you're not there. Or they're, they're feeling depressed on some other thing. Life just getting to them. Children getting to them. Their boss getting to them. Lord, please help us. Please help us to draw upon you, to focus on you. And, and if would be you take us out into the wilderness, away from situations where it seems like you've deserted us, help us to realize you did this with Moses. You did this with Paul. And Lord, and even with David here. And Lord, you turn them into great leaders that you can use. Help us to rely upon that. And I thank you so much for this time and for all who are listening. May God bless. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.
My friends, thank you so much for joining me today. And as we continue this series, David's Guide to Leadership, I hope this has helped you. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, check us out on our website, um, evidenceforfaith.org. We would love to hear from you. So until we meet again, take care and may God bless. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to help us produce the next course, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And don't forget to use some of the other links in our description. You can find out more about Evidence for Faith and what we do as a ministry and even sign up to some of our programs. And if you've enjoyed today's course, don't forget to share it with a friend so they can benefit from it too. And with that, we hope to see you on the next course.